Hello and welcome to Podcast by Brodies. My name is David Lee and in this series we take an in-depth look at some of the common and not so common questions and scenarios Brodies lawyers have been faced with over the years. For these initial episodes, I'm joined by Advocacy by Brodies, the team of solicitor advocates within the firm who work at the front line of the law across many disciplines, from litigation to land and public law to parliamentary affairs. In each episode, we'll be talking to experts from Advocacy by Brodies to discover their insights and experiences and how they take the right approach when they're asked that deceptively simple question, what do I do if? For this episode, I'm joined by two of Brodie's most experienced courtroom operators. Christine O'Neill QC is Brodie's chairman and a highly respected lawyer on public and constitutional law issues. And Brian Campbell is a solicitor advocate and part-time employment judge. Christine and Brian will address the thorny question, what do I do if I think the judge here in my case is biased? So welcome, Christine and Brian. So first of all, Christine, to you, this is quite a big question. And what specifically do we mean by bias in this context? So, David, it is a big question and it starts from a big idea. And the big idea is that in our legal system, we expect our judges to be impartial. And impartiality means that they come to the hearing of cases without prejudices and without a foregone conclusion in their mind as to um, the particular outcome that might flow from the case. Now, not not. It's not possible for judges to be perfect and to be completely free of um, their preconceptions, attitudes, their um, predispositions to different um, legal arguments. But what we can have is a situation in which we do our best to prevent personal factors coming into play when the judge is making a decision. So when we talk about bias in this context, we're talking about the kinds of personal characteristics, opinions or um, prior involvement in the issues before the court that might lead the parties before the judge to think that the judge isn't able to decide their case fairly. That might be a connection with the case. It might be a financial interest in the case if they are the shareholder in a company that might happen to be before the court. And it might be something personal. It might be a family connection um, or a friendship with parties um, in front of the court. So there's a wide range of factors that might amount to bias um, that is problematic for our legal system. OK, and, and how common is it, Christine, for clients to make an accusation of bias against a judge? Is it rare? Does it happen reasonably often or not? I think every client who um, sees their case decided by a judge or some other decision maker um, in a tribunal or in a court will come away from the process with an idea about whether the judge is sympathetic to their case or not. And every client is likely to come out of court and say, that judge is with me or that judge is against me. That's a quite different thing from an allegation of actual bias on the part of a judge. And it's relatively rare for a client to be concerned that a judge has not given them a fair hearing because the judge has got some idea about how the case ought to be decided in advance or because the judge has a connection um, with the issues in the case that make it impossible for that judge to give them that fair hearing. Okay, and and Brian, Christine touched earlier on, on some of the kinds of issues we might talk about, about what is bias 
And is it actually ever possible to have a watertight definition of it? Yes. Well, first, I think it's important to make a distinction between bias, which is real, and bias that's apparent. And real bias is easier to understand as a concept and to deal with, although understandably, it's probably rarer. So that would example be where a judge brings a personal view or a prejudice into the decision rather than just the evidence and the relevant law. Um, So finding against a party because of their nationality or their religion or their political views, for example, rather than the strength of their case. That would be a real example of of bias. Um, But apparent bias, as the term suggests, uh, that's where there are circumstances that create a high enough risk that an impartial decision might not be reached. Uh, And that tends to be more of a question of degree and views may vary uh, on whether apparent bias exists in a particular case. Uh, So a common example would be where the judge uh, is a personal friend of a party or a witness or a representative on one side. And that judge may well feel able to put that to one side, but the other party may not be so confident. Um, Or another example would be where the judge has done something in the past that suggests strongly enough that they wouldn't be able to be neutral. So they may have expressed a view publicly uh, on a particular issue or been especially critical of one of the parties in a previous case. So those are two different types of bias, uh, each with a different way uh, of approaching them. Um, And it may just be as important to uh, recognise what's not biased because just because a judge does something you don't like, that isn't generally enough. So the judge may be equally impatient or grumpy to both parties. And sometimes a judge may just forget something or make an error that happens to go against you. Um, And that won't be enough unless there's more of a pattern that suggests that they haven't kept an open mind in the case. And I think also worth saying is that in many courts and tribunals, the judges are under a specific duty to put the parties on an equal footing. And I've often seen a professionally represented party bristle when a judge takes some time with an unrepresented litigant to explain some of the concepts and to make sure they understand their case. And I've been that representative myself in some cases. So a judge trying to maintain an even playing field may actually come across as them trying to help one side. And as to whether you could ever get to a watertight definition, well, I think given what I've just said, it might be difficult beyond understanding the main concepts. If that was possible, then it probably would have been done by now. Um, But what we do have is guidance from the courts in some of the cases where these issues have come up, um, all using their own particular words or approaches to those issues. And I think the rest just comes down to judgment. So it tends to be one of those things that with experience, you know it when you see it. But often the bar is a little bit higher than parties might realise. Okay, just on one particular point you made there, Brian, just on if there is a personal friendship between the judge and and one of the parties, is there a mechanism for the judge to be, you know, excused from that case or for the judge to do it themselves or a third party to do it? Yes, a a judge would be expected at the very least to declare that to the parties as early as possible. Now, that may well be at the beginning of the first day of the hearing, but they would be expected to identify that and make it clear to the parties so that each party would have the opportunity uh, to express a view on it. Uh, And then after any consideration of those party views, the judge would have to take a decision whether to recuse themselves, as they say, and effectively step away from that particular case. And I have seen that happen, David. I've seen situations where a judge will get the papers early in the day, but then appear on the bench and say to the parties, I've read this um, material and I've remembered that I was involved in a case like this, or I've remembered that I was involved in in acting for one of these parties. Um, 
I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm impartial enough to carry on, but I'm making you aware of this. What, what have you got to say about it? And that's quite an important thing to protect the process and to protect the judge, because if the judge does make parties aware of those factors and they don't object at the time, it can be very difficult to object down the line. So it's a, it's a good um, practice on the part of of judges to make parties aware of those things as soon as they become aware of them. Okay, and and Christine, let's say a client did genuinely think there was a case of bias and that the judge was biased against them. How convinced does that client need to be and do you need to be to actually take that forward and make some kind of raise it as a formal issue? I think there it's really important that the legal advisor leads the client rather than the client leading the advisor. Clients obviously have a lot invested in a case and and can be very emotional about um, the issues that are being decided by the court. And it's the lawyer's job to stand back from that emotion and to really properly assess what's in front of everyone. Now, it's easier in some respects if you're dealing with what Brian has described as actual bias. So the question of a shareholding or a financial interest in a case ought to be something that can be established as a fact or or as not a fact. And in those circumstances, it's relatively easy, I think, to to weigh up the evidence around whether or not there is um, a direct interest and a question of, of actual bias. If what you're relying on is apparent bias, this question of whether the circumstances give rise to this risk that justice may not be seen to be done, that's a much more complex assessment. Um, and the test that the courts apply when they're thinking about this themselves is whether the informed observer, the person with full information about the case and a person who is reasonable, would they, looking at all of this, think that there was um, this real risk of bias on the part of the judge? And that's the kind of assessment that you as a legal advisor would have to be bringing to that, that job. And what about that situation, Christine, though, when you say the legal advisor should lead the client what about when the client is just not happy? They say, this judge is biased. I want to, you know, I want to raise this formally. You as the legal advisor think, well, this is going to be counterproductive. It could be detrimental to the case. What happens then? So I think in those circumstances, you just have to be very, very clear uh, with your client about the potential consequences. Now, judges, um, although it's not a very common experience, judges are trained to respond appropriately to challenges of this sort. So they ought not to hold it against a client if an objection is taken um, to them sitting in the case, but that is is rejected. They ought to be able to put it out of their mind and carry on as normal. Inevitably, though, you will be saying to your client, if you think um, the objection is a weak one, that this might be difficult for the case going forward. It is a difficult thing to do to say to a judge that you think they're not capable of treating you in a fair way. And there's always going to be a trace of that, I think, um, that lingers at least in the mind after the objection is dealt with. So you have to give that very candid advice. Then you have to take a view on whether the objection is one that can be made at all responsibly. So do you have a basis for taking the objection, even though it might fail? If your instructions are to do that, then you should do that. But if you don't think there is a basis at all for the allegation, then that's one of those very difficult situations 
where you have to say to your client that you can't help them with this particular aspect of the case and you may have to take a view on parting company with your client. I have never experienced that on a question of bias. I think it's a very, very rare um, circumstance altogether. Okay, and and Brian, if you do decide to go ahead, if you do decide there is bias here, uh, the lawyer and the client are on on the same page, what's the procedure? Where do you go next? Well, your first option is to raise the issue as soon as it comes up. So that may well be when the judge discloses information for you to consider at the beginning of a hearing. It may be an issue that comes up during a hearing, which is obviously less fortunate. But either way, you're basically asking the judge to recuse themselves. Now, you generally need to act quickly, as Christine says, um, and parties have been criticised in cases where they've waited to see how the hearing goes before bringing the issue up. Um, Now, if your point uh, is accepted by the judge, that will usually mean that the hearing hearing has to be restarted. Um, That may mean abandoning a hearing that's partway through uh, and another judge will need to be found to hear that case. Now, also, as Christine says, the judge won't automatically agree to a request for recusal. Uh, They have to weigh up uh, whether it's um, made on, on sufficient grounds. Obviously, weighing that against the disadvantage of restarting a case and and losing time in the process. And there's a body of case law that that guides judges as to how strong a challenge needs to be and reminds them of the power that they ultimately have to take the decision there. And of course, if if you don't um, take the objection at the time, as, as Brian said, you may be in a situation where you lose the opportunity to do so at all. But sometimes the issue doesn't come to light until after the hearing is over and until after you have a decision from the court or until after the hearing is over and you've been able to think carefully and soberly about whether the way the judge behaved, for example, towards your client was um, inappropriate and and was such as to give rise to a concern about bias. In those circumstances, you don't challenge or you may not be able to challenge at the time. You can take it as a point of appeal against the ultimate decision of um, that judge. But uh, as Brian has said, the better and favoured option is to take the objection just as soon as you're able and how difficult is it to make a challenge, Christine? And who ultimately, if the judge does uh, refuse to recuse themselves, that's a bit of a tongue twister there, sorry. Um, who judges the judge? Who makes that decision? Well, as, as Brian has said, the judge in the first instance has to make that decision for themselves. They have to take a, a view on whether the objection that has been taken to them Um, sitting in the case is a good one and judges are given advice about this and Brian will talk about that training in due course but um, one of the things that's emphasised is the importance of not being too easily um, intimidated by an objection on grounds of bias so the judge makes the decision in the the first instance Um, if they if they disagree with the objection but you want to maintain it, then that can be something that can be appealed. And if you were in the court of session, which is where I would most normally be, that would be to a bench of of probably three judges um, in the inner house of the court of se- of session. Y- your question, really, David, was how difficult is it to do this? It's not an easy thing, I don't think, for a lawyer to do. It it does involve a a drawing in of breath and a a kind of standing up for the client, but it's one of the most important things that you can do to protect the client if you do think there is a genuine problem. 
Okay, and Brian, you've touched on this a little bit already, but what about the pros and cons of a challenge? They must have to be weighed up very carefully before going ahead. Very much so. Um, If your challenge is accepted, then obviously you get to remove someone before they might reach an outcome that you would have feared, uh, or at least you get their decision overturned. So either way, you get a second bite at the cherry, effectively. Uh, And you also buy time in the process. Um, Now, although that might be more of value to a defender than a pursuer, um, it's worth bearing in mind. Um, It will also increase the cost of the litigation because you're probably going to have to repeat some of what you did uh, and it will involve uh, the the cost of of delay in coming back. So if you're the party with the deepest pockets, that may tip the odds slightly in your favour in the litigation and you might be putting financial pressure on the other side. Um, And even if you're unsuccessful with a challenge during a hearing, it may help you simply by encouraging the the judge to focus or refocus uh, on coming to a fair decision. Although that said, as Christine alluded to, uh, judges are human and there will always be the suspicion that if you've unsuccessfully challenged their probity, you may not get the same breaks further down the line. Um, And if you're raising the point by way of an appeal later on, um, you won't be worried so much about what the original judge thinks of you by that stage, which is obviously a plus point. Um, And also there may be something in the written judgment that you can point to as evidence suggesting bias, although that can be something that's difficult to read off the page if you weren't there at the time. Um, But as I mentioned, if keeping the process going is something that works to your advantage, then an appeal will certainly do that. And it may be that that allows you to persuade an opponent perhaps with more limited resources, uh, who who has just had enough of litigation to agree a settlement on terms that are more favourable to you. Because often litigation is as much a a war of attrition as it is about who's right in law. Okay, and Christine mentioned, Brian, before about training. Uh, What kind of training in avoiding bias do judges get in the first place to try and avoid these situations occurring? Yes. Well, quite a lot is a short answer. Uh, and newly appointed judges are trained on different aspects of bias as a rule, whether that's conscious or unconscious and the different ways that that can manifest itself in, in a courtroom type scenario. And that training is reinforced uh, and revisited throughout their tenure. So it's a constant element in their thinking. Um, and there are lots of materials which are available to judges and which they're encouraged to use uh, to ensure that they put parties on an equal footing, as I alluded to before. And also judges, they take an oath at the beginning of their term, which includes a promise to do right by all manner of people without fear or favour. So avoiding bias and neutrality is very much a cornerstone of the rule from the very outset. Um, And there are additional rules which are designed to ensure their independence. And so, for example, judges shouldn't be making income from other businesses or be associated with political parties. So there's a whole range of different measures designed to minimise as effectively as possible the, the presence of bias in any decisions that they take. Okay, thanks, Brian. So, so Christine, we've heard there there's quite a lot of training for judges. It's ongoing. If we do get to the situation where there is a challenge, you know, there's a, there's a quite a process to go through. How rare is it to actually go through all of that and for a challenge on the grounds of bias to be successful? Are there any particular cases that you can highlight where it's gone all the way? It's rare, but it's not unheard of. So I haven't ever dealt with one in the course of my career, but I'm aware of cases in the Scottish courts over the course of that career, maybe at the rate of of one or two a year that make it into the law reports. That's not a, a great 
hit rate, if I can put it like that. It's a relatively rare thing to happen. But there are high profile examples and some of them make the news beyond the legal world. Um, One of the most famous cases involved the extradition proceedings against the former Chilean uh, dictator General Pinochet. Um, That was a very famous case for a whole range of reasons, but one of those reasons was that it was an example of the, the, the courts themselves extending the range of circumstances in which they would say there was a bias on the part of a judge such as to make the process unfair. In that case, Lord Hoffman, um, one of the judges in the then House of Lords, was an unpaid director of a charity relating to Amnesty International. He didn't derive any financial uh, remuneration from that position and it wasn't something that he was doing for financial reasons. He was doing it in the promotion of a cause because he believed in the work that Amnesty did. And one of the things that the court did in that case in overturning the earlier decision of the House of Lords to approve the extradition of General Pinochet, it extended the test to say if a judge can be shown to be promoting a cause um, and that cause plays a role in the case in front of the court, that will be an example of bias that can undermine their um, decision making. That's probably one of the most famous cases of a, a win Um, for someone making an objection on the grounds of bias. But there are lots of other cases of of losing um, similar types of objection. One of the most recent um, involved an English um, chief magistrate uh, who was dealing with a case involving Uber, um, the private hire uh, providers, and her husband was a consultant to a company that invested in Uber. Now, you and I might think that is a reasonably uh, tenuous connection, but nevertheless, one of the parties objected to her hearing the case because of her husband's involvement with an investor. That was thrown out as not a basis for um, a bias uh, objection. So there are many more failures, I would say, than there are successes in this field. Okay, and then very few successful cases, as you say, if we count as you know it going all the way as success does that mean we should be confident that our legal system is doing all it can to avoid bias and are we in a fairly good place do you think brian i think in the real world the answer to that is probably um judges are only human uh, but generally do try to reach the fairest outcome in most cases um, it can be natural for each side to view something that goes against them more acutely because of what they've got invested in their side of the case. And there are lots of ways that a judge can be critical with or without justification, without actually being biased. Um, I suppose, though, it would be naive to think that bias never happens, particularly the unintentional um, or apparent type. Um, but uh, I do genuinely think that those cases are acceptably minimal. And I suppose coming all the way back to where we started in this discussion, all of this is in the service of a big idea, and that is that our legal system should protect impartiality and that parties should be judged um, fairly and openly by judges who don't have um, a preordained outcome in mind. In, In my experience, that is what parties tend to experience in the court system. And I think that we should genuinely think ourselves fortunate to have a legal system that has spent so much time working out these rules and principles and takes the time to apply them when parties bring an objection. 
Thanks very much, Christine O'Neill, and thank you to Brian Campbell, too, for your fascinating insights there uh, in that episode of What Do I Do If?, uh, which is brought to you by Podcast by Brodies, uh, where some of the country's leading lawyers and special guests share their enlightened thinking about the issues and developments that impact on the legal sector and what that means in turn for organisations, businesses and individuals across the various sectors of the UK economy and society. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe to Podcast by Brodies on all your main podcast platforms. And for more information and insights, please visit www.brodies.com.